Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Libby Larson. Libby has amassed an impressive catalog of over 500 works spanning many genres from solo vocal works to massive orchestral works and over 15 operas. She is co-founder of the Minnesota Composer Forum, now the American Composers Forum. She earned a BA and master's degree in composition as well as a PhD in theory and composition from the University of Minnesota. Libby held residencies with the Minnesota Orchestra, the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra, and the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. In 2007, she was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. Libby Larson, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's start back at the very beginning. I've heard that's a very good place to start. <laughs> I kept you. That's <laughs> <the> music. <laughs> that's right. So what is the earliest musical memory that you have? Um, it depends on your definition of music, but <laughs> but for me, it is uh, a music is a sound that captures my ear and my imagination as its own uh, as its own object connected to an emotion. Okay, so so um, you could you might think of this as the first time I heard uh, 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 timpani, you know, uh-huh. or subwoofer sound. But, here, but here's what it was. So when I, um, I was uh, uh, quite a baby actually, uh, and um, my parents lived uh, in a carriage house uh, on an estate in Delaware. Uh, and the, um, base, or the, the, the room where I guess I must have spent a lot of time as a little kid, you, you know, was just, even with the ground. So there was a window that, you know, just sort of a half window. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the deal. So, so I was there and I, and I, I remember quite clearly, I've never been able to reproduce this sound, but a, a, a low rhythmic sound uh, that was resonating through the earth, you know, and just, boom. and it was, and, um, and it was, also the Doppler effect, because it was coming close. It was uh-huh. the Doppler effect, you know? Uh, and what it was, was uh, horses. Uh, that, on that estate, uh, it's amazing to think of this, but people fox, they went fox hunting. Uh, and, uh, and the fox, which I didn't notice at all, at least sonically or see, had gone right by the window, that half window. And the horses were chasing the fox. And so the next, so I was just caught up in the sound and the Doppler effect of it coming, coming. And I remember really clearly seeing the hooves of the horses oh, wow. go by the window and then, you know, <laughs> go, go off. <laughs> you know, it's an extraordinary uh, sonic memory. Uh, and and it, it may be what has formed my whole, the whole basis of how I hear sound in time and space. Yeah, you know, that's fantastic. That's yeah. not at all the answer I was expecting. <laughs> That's great. So what sort of musical activities were you involved in growing up? Typical ones. Um, and then one extraordinary one. 
So I grew up in the in in Minneapolis in the Midwest in the 1950s. Uh, and so um, my musical experiences consisted of, uh, of taking piano lessons, like all of my siblings did. And we all started at age seven. And then we, those of us who took to it, you know, went on. I wanted to start playing the piano at age three. So I, I hung around the piano a lot. I do this because I, you know, I, 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 I can feel it in my body, you know, it's sort of looking down the keyboard you know, gnawing on the piano, watching my sister's hands move up and down the piano. Uh, uh, and um, so we all took piano lessons, not flute, not guitar. It had to be piano, uh, sort of post-Victorian parlor training. <laughs> and, um, uh, but also um, uh, the, uh, we had uh, the record player. Uh, there was always music on the record player in our house. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, there was always a stack of records uh, on the record player at that time. And each one of us got to put a record in the stack. Uh, and so you know, my mom loved uh, Broadway and Boogie uh-huh. piano. My dad loved Dixieland. My sisters, my two older sisters, you know, loved the boy bands of the time, you know, <laughs> and um, my younger sister uh, loved Burl Ives. I also love Burl Ives, but, you know, so there'd be Burl Ives and Bach and no, no Bach. Um, there'd be Broadway, there'd be Boogie, there'd be Ricky Nelson. You know? <laughs> and, and, and for some reason, I, uh, I loved contemporary Russian piano music. <laughs> so, you know, but so you have this stack of records and, you know, you get the A side on, on all of these and then the B side, you know, mm-hmm. um, which was my early roots of eclecticism, actually. Um, so, so record player, whatever was on the TV, you know, TV was very new in the 1950s. So all of the, you know, what, what is now iconic music, like the Mickey Mouse Club song and, you, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you, you know, we're, we're brand new. It was new music in the air uh, and, um, uh, and then whatever was on the radio. Uh, and so, so that sort of typical Midwestern growing up in America kind of stuff. Some live concerts, uh, uh, my parents would, would bring me actually, they must've seen something, you know, uh, uh, they would bring me to the orchestra you know, maybe three times in my growing up, you know, my mom took me to the ballet a couple of times, but, you know, so lots and lots of exposure. Um, and then um, I sang in, but he, okay, so here comes the extraordinary thing. That's all ordinary, you know, <laughs> lots, lots and lots of us, especially from that time era, but, you know, have a, uh, a, a lots of music in our lives from lots of popular sources. Uh, uh, and, um, but this was, but the other thing was that I went to a Catholic grade school uh, uh, at starting, um, I was four years old when I started, and that would have been 1954. Uh, and I went to a Catholic grade school from um, first grade uh, to all the way through eighth grade, so that amount of time. That was, um, uh, and here's what was extraordinary. Um, it was right before the Vatican II Council, mm-hmm. uh, which changed how music works in the Catholic Church. Just it's like a right. tsunami of change, tectonic plate shift. <laughs> the the um in in the school that I attended, um, it was a school where uh, that 
most all of the teachers were uh, uh, most of them were uh, Saint Joseph of Carondelet, uh, uh, which is a particular um, um, order, uh, uh, and they they almost all of them were teaching at this school as the last place they were going to teach in their profession. So they've been mm. teaching a long time, very skilled, you know, um, uh, very devote life devoted to the education of the brain. So here's what they did. Who could imagine? But now I, I know uh, why. Um, they taught every first grader uh, how to read and write music as a discipline of the mind, not as a performance art. Hmm. Um, uh, and they taught in, in the quadrivium. Uh, and so what they were what they were passing, so we all uh, read music and we wrote music long before we performed it. So by the time we became the church choirs and what have you, we could read down the Gregorian uh, uh, hymnal, which has got you know hundreds and hundreds of chants. We could you know turn to chant 33B in the mess of the Blessed Virgin Mary and just read it down, not even rehearsing it, just read it down. You know, so all of us. Uh, learned to think in music, wow. uh, and we kept it up for eight, for until the Vatican II Council. So for me, it was through uh, it was uh, five years uh, of daily practice, uh, uh, and then when Vatican II changed, you know, and in came the uh, the singing nuns with the guitars and you know, <laughs> <laughs> and sound systems, you know, <laughs> then. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. That's been that's an extraordinary moment now in my composing life. But but then you know then that replaced all the quadrivium. So but all all of us who were who were there um, during that period of time, it was about a ten year period of time. Many of us are still in touch, and all of us know now that you know that we were we were being trained uh, to, um, uh, to to carry this this method of training the brain. Uh, it was so cool. So from then on, in, you know, high school, I sang in a rock band and I sang in an SATB choir and I played piano and I, you know, and I did from then on, I became myself. <laughs> so when did you decide that you wanted to pursue composition? You learned it at an early age, but did. when, when did you decide to do that as a profession? It, uh, in college, you know, um, uh, it was about my sophomore year in college. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I, I had my heart set on becoming um, the next great metropolitan opera <laughs> coloratura. Either that or a stockbroker. Those are my. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, uh, but it was it was about my sophomore year in college when I uh, when my brain put it together that what I'd been doing in all my spare time, you know, <laughs> yeah. since first grade, you know. Uh, which meant I was getting a triple plus in music theory, you know, <laughs> you know, that, that, that was my pond and my, and I was the duck in that, pond. that I didn't even, it didn't occur. Oh, I just love working with young brains. You know, it, it didn't occur to me that I thought everybody thought in music. I just uh-huh. did. And I thought everybody had music in their head all the time, you know, and all they had to do was access it and then write it down. And that was fun. You know, but once I started college and realized that many of my colleagues were not thinking that way, 
you know, um, then I, I felt, um, I didn't feel grateful, you know, but I felt like that's, that's what I, that's what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, And, um, uh, and so then I abandoned my dreams of the Metropolitan Opera, (laughs) you know, and, um, and really set off on the path of if you, if you are a composer, as you are, you know, uh, if I'm a composer, how, how are we in this world? You know, what yeah. is the world we're in? Uh, and, and that's a question that I think we are, we're all pursuing. Yeah, you know, you actually have a, a quote on your website that sort of speaks to this. It says, uh, music exists in an infinity of sound. I think of all music existing in the substance of the air itself. It is the composer's task to order and make sense of sound in time and space to communicate something about being alive through music. Yeah. So how do you feel as a composer that you fulfill this task? Well, it's a quest. (laughs) (laughs) And I, uh, every piece that I work on, I, um, I try as best I can under the circumstances to, to feel what it's, what the air is like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the physical air, but, all, but maybe more importantly, the psychological air, you, you know, and also the sonic air, you know, what is actually hanging around in the air, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I try to f- match that, that energy uh, uh, um, with an idea uh, that can be comprehended as a piece of music. Uh-huh. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 That, that's what I try to do. Uh, and, and sometimes m- more successful than other times. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I try to do. Cause you know, I don't, um, expressing what it's like to be alive, you, you know, I, I, um, you would assume that you must know what it's like to be dead, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just the way that our, you know, we, we shape our thinking in dialectics and you know, like, what it, it, um, but, um, um, uh, but, but I, I don't know that. So <laughs> I just, I, I will eventually, but I don't know, <laughs> you know? So I just try to, to feel the energy, mm-hmm. you know, and then understand, can it be heard through the vehicle of a clarinet? It, yeah. Does that make sense to you? It does. Yeah. You know, and that, that sort of leads me to my next question, um, because in addition to being an accomplished composer, you're also an accomplished speaker and you speak about music philosophy and things like that. Uh, having presented at such as places as the League of American Orchestras, American Choral Directors Association, the Music Education National Convention, just to name a few. Yeah. So how would you compare and or contrast the process you use to compose music as the process you would use to create a speech or a presentation? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> um, I, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, maybe they are. There are some similar things. I um, always research. I, I love to research. Uh, 
trying, uh, um, and, and if I can, I researched to the primary source. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking about a speech I gave uh, last year, right before the pandemic hit, to the Florida Educators Music Association. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and it was a speech where they asked me, can you imagine this? They asked me to take a look at the past and then talk about the future. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, and I just thought, well, that's absurd, but okay, you know, uh, that's interesting. And so, um, and so, I I I spent about six months um, re researching. Uh, 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 how can I say this? Um, I spent about six months researching, and what I did was I. I presented um, uh, um, the history of the, of the evolution of, of, uh, of um, delivery systems for music in the culture from 1850 to 2000. At that time, it was January 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and then just traced. You know, transportation. Here's what it was. You know, in 1850, it was carriages. We didn't. You know, we just had. Uh, telegraphs, we didn't have radios, we didn't, you know, and then just kind of went gener- generation by generation to project seven generations, uh-huh. if, if I could. Okay, so that's, a, that's epic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and my recommendation to music educators at that time was, you're missing the boat. <laughs> you know, it, you know you're, you're living in the 1950s model of how to create a great corporate worker. You know, uh-huh. uh, and you, using large ensembles, you know, as a way of training a lot of people to follow the leader. You know, and, uh, and um, we've evolved way far away from that now. You know, and you're you're really missing the boat. You know, if if you need to educate, you uh, show show numbers as the success for your education, large numbers of people, then you ought to be developing the art of listening to music. You know, as 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 a central piece of music education in the public school system. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, uh, so I, I, don't let me get go off on that. But you were okay. So all right, yay. Um, so that's a lot of research. You know, and a, and it's sort of epic, you know, uh, uh, presentation. Kind of the same for yeah, uh, uh, in music. I. I I think you're a very prescient fellow because I was just thinking, hmm, because we're going to talk about Holy Roller, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about Sorrow Song, you know, some chamber pieces. Uh, and um, that that period of research and of absorption, research and absorption is really the, the part of my process that's always there, even if there's not a piece yeah. yet that's going to come from it. Uh, that it's that feeling the times, you know, and feeling, and then um, if the piece, if the if the inspiration for the piece turns out to be the an evangelical preacher's, you know, tent revival sermon, which is holy roller, you know, then I can actually then I and I do, uh, then I start looking for the music in it, you know, so researching, so you know, listening to tent revival preachers, and you know, really, and then listening for for. How important is that form in the culture at large? Mm-hmm. Turns out it's <laughs> turns out we use it all the time, especially our politicians. You know, uh, 
And so um, it, in, in a, in a nonlinear uh, way, I kind of gather this and gather that and gather this about, uh, you know, all kinds of things around the energy of an idea, uh, whether yeah. it's a Florida music educator speech or a piece for saxophone and piano, I think, you know, and then of course, right. So the basic process is not that different. The technical realization is quite different. Sure, of course. Yeah, I, I, I would love to hear that whole uh, presentation that you gave to the Florida music educators. That sounds absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so in um, earlier in the season uh, of Movable Dough, I interviewed a former student of yours, as I mentioned to you, Jake Renestad. So yeah. I asked him if there was something that I should ask you that I might not find on your online bio. Oh, inside information. <laughs> <laughs> so he said I should ask about your long distance running as oh, well as yeah. the importance of lakes, water, and sailing in your life. Oh, Can you be able to talk yeah. about these ideas? I can. And and yeah, Jake would know, actually. <laughs> that, um, yeah, I I uh uh I'm bound to water, uh specifically lake water, but that's just by dint of the fact that I grew up mostly here in Minnesota, where uh, there are lakes everywhere, you know, in all shapes, you know, yeah. and right now puddles. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, and I, um, uh, so um, I don't actually write about water, but I, but water is in, uh, uh, is, 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 is just in my energy a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I um, have written many men, a fair number of pieces, you know, where where water in some shape or form is the muse. Uh -huh. uh, so um, my first symphony, I, I figured I needed to write about what I knew, you know? <laughs> and so I wrote. Um, it, the piece ended up being um, uh, symphony water music, uh, and. Uh, uh, and um, in, in four movements, uh, a short symphony, um, and it's about the interplay of light and water and wind. Okay. So the, the idea is that you are in it, not, I'm not, it's not the Hebrides. I'm not putting a frame around it and saying, look at that, look at that. I try to uh, put us in the energy of it uh, or, uh, or a winter um, uh, water piece called um, Slow Sculptures which is uh, we're trying to put um, uh, us again uh, uh, inside of a drift of snow as it's being shaped uh, you know, by wind mm -hmm. in frigid cold. Anyway, so uh, water is very, is, um, is, is very much on, uh, uh, in my heart, you know, and in my heart. Now, long distance running, you know, uh, uh, is um, huh? Is uh, yeah. I've been long distance running uh, uh, on purpose uh, <laughs> <laughs> since I was about thirty five. Since I was thirty five, yeah. And uh, maybe a couple of years earlier, I I thought I I wanted to run long distances, uh, and and I thought I knew how to run, and I didn't know how to run, and so I got injured. So then I you know learned how to run, you know, uh, and have been running. Uh, uh, long distance marathons, uh, nothing more than marathons. Uh, although I have many friends who are ultra marathoners or what have you. Um, 
uh, and running is, huh, I think what running did was re re replace um, practicing a, a musical instrument. Hmm. For me. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I just started practicing my body, you know, uh, instead, uh, and, um, and, and giving myself blocks of time, lots, lots of time to, for, for um, something that I really love, which is solitude. Mm -hmm. you know, just to be alone with my thoughts. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I've been running, uh, and continued to run long distance, uh, for almost 40 years now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. That is, that is fantastic. I, as someone that's never run more than five miles in one shot, I think a marathon <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> You also have to. I mean, if you're lucky, then you you have a uh, your bo uh, a body that can you know that can do that. And I'm a I'm a little kind of birdie body, you know. Uh -huh. A lot of marathon runners are little tiny people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got one last question for you before we take a break. So, what is something unexpected about your taste in music that people might not realize from just reading your online bio? Like, are you a heavy metal fan or? <laughs> or what what would people not know about your musical taste probably um chicago blues oh really yeah which i i love it so much that i don't try to dig into it <laughs> <laughs> you know you know I, yeah I, I love it you know and um and i and i can and i i can actually listen to it uh without it i can turn my mind off and you know, not analyze it, anything about it, just like be with it. Chicago blues. Oh, well, as a, as a musician, to be able to turn off the analytical brain while you're listening to music, that's, that's a gift right there. Isn't it? Yeah. I, I could ask you the same question. What, <laughs> is it heavy metal? <laughs> it, it's not, it's uh, alternative music. Um, I, I love the alternative music, especially from the nineties. Um, I, I was into to grunge uh, cranberries. I love the music of the cranberries. Ah, now I'm going to go listen. <laughs> the cranberries are fantastic. I, I can recommend everything that they ever did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, after a quick break, we'll have a chance to listen to some of Libby's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Libby Larson. So let's begin today with a string quartet, Sorrow Song and Jubilee. So this song is based on the spiritual Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which you compare with how Dvorak used spirituals as inspiration for his New World Symphony. Yeah. So as I listen, I'm, I'm rarely hearing a direct quote of Swing Low Sweet Chariot in this piece. So are you using it more as a, a loose idea to connect the, the piece together? I uh, actually use quite, quite a bit of Swing Low Sweet Chariot. But in fragments, mm -hmm. it, 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 yeah. I, I heard the fragments, just never a, a complete, well, no, not the complete, one, not, one complete statement that I can remember. <laughs> right. And um, uh, nor would I do that. No. Um, in this piece, yeah, I use Swing, swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and um, also uh, Coming Home, Coming Home. Da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. Both of those were spirituals, which, um, uh, uh, with uh, and um, and I use them uh, in in fragmented, more contemporary techniques. 
uh, in compositional you know, te uh, techniques uh, to create um, a, a, a form that, uh, that, that um, parallels the, uh, do you know the Dumpka and, and Furiant? Sure, yeah, yeah, I, I actually lived some time in the Czech Republic and well, I'm familiar it. with those terms, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I and because I, I really I I I I really wanted to um, send the send the minds of the listeners to the fact that the relationship of Harry Burley uh, and and Dvorak um, uh, is what made Dvorak's career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't realize the connection between those two until I, I read what you wrote on on your website. Yeah, yeah, it it it's it's. Um, it's an it's a relationship that is that has not been traditionally explored in music history, uh, you, you know. But you know we're coming to grips with these kinds of things now in our culture. That in fact, <laughs> Harry Burley, you know, really taught Dvorak quite a bit, you, you know, about the American spiritual, uh, yeah. and and Harry Burley himself was very very famous. Yeah. You know, uh, at the time, but Western European music history has just kind of like not even a footnote. So, so I, I, uh, I, I, I wanted to, to create a, I don't know if it's a portrait or what it is, but a Dumka and Furiant, only, uh, 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 only uh, an American one. Uh, so the sorrow song, you know, is Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And and the uh, uh, and, and then it translates into, you know, a furiant, a rhythmic, rhythmic, rhythmic dance. Yeah. Uh, and the sorrow song really is that. How in the world can we be talking about the genius of Dvorak and never mention Harry Burley? All right. Well, we are going to take some time now and listen to "Sorrow Song and Jubilee," uh, played by the Apollo Chamber Players.
let's turn next to a work for mezzo soprano and piano wolf song in los angeles i found this piece fascinating mostly because of the howling soprano but also because of the reference to los angeles i grew up there till i was 12 uh we would take field trips out to the la brea tar pits that are mentioned in this piece uh so i'd love you to tell me about the text and the creation of this piece yeah yeah um i um i i i had a very, very dear friend, a uh, very fine poet by the name of Bill Holm. Uh, grew up in, in Minnesota. Um, this, this crazy man, six foot seven, thin, you know, blonde, thin, just like, oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and a, a really extraordinary uh, poet. Uh, I own all his poetry. And um, um, I was reading uh, in, in his, a volume of his poetry called uh, The Dead Get By With Everything. <laughs> and I found this particular poem, Wolf Song in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and in the poem talks about um, walking, doesn't even say walking, about being on Wilshire Boulevard in the canyon of the buildings in Wilshire Boulevard and hearing the echoes of, of the cries of dire wolves, hmm. um, who of course haven't, been there for nine thousand years, but that but the poet imagines that their wolf their their howling is is there, uh, uh, and um, uh, and the poem also talks about the La Brea tar pits where men I think four hundred plus uh, skulls skeletons of dire wolves are, uh, and um, and it's it's really it's a really evocative, extraordinary uh, 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 poem about um, hmm, evolution, uh, extinction, uh, and um, the transient nature of just being alive. Mm -hmm. So I set the poem uh, the way I thought it needed to be set. <laughs> so, so, yeah, with soprano and soprano as wolf. All right, well, let's listen to our soprano, Clara Osowski. Did I say that name correctly? Yeah. And Tyler uh, Wuchrich at the piano, uh, performing Wolf Song in Los Angeles. Thank you. 
The sign says all different walls, each empty socket a feather narrower, skulls, peculiar fingertips pickled in this mark ten thousand years. So next, a piece for saxophone and piano, Holy Roller, uh, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, so the dictionary definition of a Holy Roller is a member of the evangelical Christian group, which expresses religious fervor by frenzied excitement or trances. So does that definition sort of fit into what you were thinking as you wrote this piece? Absolutely. <laughs> it does. Um, I Yes. I imagined this piece um, to, um, well, I didn't, um, I created this piece um, using the form of uh, an evangelical preacher's sermon, mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, placing the saxophone in the role of the preacher uh, and, and the piano in the role of everything else. You know, the, those receiving the preaching, being worked up with the preacher, you know, and, um, and it's, it's about, um, uh, no, it's not about, um, the, um, it's a long intensity uh, line, yeah. uh, which sermon, evangelical sermons are uh, brilliant in this way that they introduce an idea, you, you know, one idea, one, just one, <laughs> and then keep spinning it out, you know, building in, uh, in intensity and working the crowd, you know, uh, uh, into a, 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 state, a state of spiritual, uh, I'll just say fervor, but, it, you know, uh, uh, and so, so I, so I, 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 re I really believe that if, if you're a classical composer, classically trained, any composer actually, but that our culture has all kinds of musical forms that we've developed or forms that we developed that that are, can be used for in music so this is the evangelical preacher working whipping the crowd into a frenzy and it's holy roller that is fascinating let's take a moment here we're going to listen to holy roller performed by stephen page
Thank you. 
All right, lastly today, we're going to talk about deep summer music written for full orchestra. So this piece was inspired by scenes of nature, especially the openness found in the Plains states. So on your website, you talk about ideas of panorama and horizon. Yeah. Can you talk more about the inspiration of this piece? I can, yeah. Um, yes, um, here where I live uh, uh, in Minnesota, uh, you can drive an hour out of uh, the Twin Cities uh, in any direction. Well, not necessarily. No, if you drive if you drive west, you hit Wisconsin, and that's. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, almost any direction, and you will be in uh, in plains, early, early plains, flat lands, flat lands, relatively flat lands, uh, and um, uh, especially if you drive west, uh, very soon the most interesting visual. Uh, thing uh, uh, is the horizon, the horizon line, mm -hmm. where really the drama of weather plays out in the sky much more than in the land. Um, and um, uh, and having lived in Minnesota um, uh, most of my life and by choice for, for the last 30, 40 years, um, uh, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to drive out into farmland where uh, it, the crops uh, are, are ripe, especially in August, when they're ripening, getting ready for harvest. Uh, and um, and uh, th there's a kind of peace of mind that is hard to find uh, uh, in other parts of the country. On the coast, you can. I love coastal beaches. Mm -hmm. There you've got horizon and shifting and infinite, you know, infinite shifting. An oscillation, but you don't have that, say, in uh, in Georgia, or you know, or, yeah, it, it, anyway. Um, um, so um, I um, was asked to write a piece uh, for the Minnesota Orchestra uh, to, uh, and the piece was to be played in a very small town uh, in western Minnesota, Terrace, Minnesota, and the people had all ponied up like money for a commission. It was amazing, you know, like. 7,000 people given like 20 bucks and it was like crowdsourcing, yeah. you know, in the early 1980s. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, so um, uh, I, one of the things I did because I researched is I drove to Terrace, Minnesota on a lovely afternoon and spent the weekend in Terrace, um, uh, which uh, has a population of 70 people. Uh, and um, I interviewed each one of the people about you know, what is, you know, why did you want a piece of music? <laughs> what are you celebrating? And it really was the connection to the land they were celebrating. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted it in symphonic music, which is extraordinary. It, uh, an that's an, an extraordinary mission. It's from a group of people bound to the land. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was very young and thought, oh, cool. You know? <laughs> But, um, but um, then thinking about, okay, what is this piece? You know, it, um, this piece, Deep Summer Music, uh, is about peace of mind and peace of soul. And it's inspired by uh, a, a, um, a ripened field of grain. Sounds trite, but it's not, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 on a hot day when the wind is blowing just a little bit. And you can see in the foreground the grain 
And then in the next background, you'd see the uh, horizon line of trees, you, you know, still flat. It's not like we're moving up, <laughs> you know, and then lots of sky, blue sky, you know, and clouds just kind of, so I, so I used for this piece, um, two things, uh, the, um, the piece of peace of mind, uh, uh, and, um, infinite modes of oscillation mm -hmm. to create this, this, this piece, deep summer music. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take some time and we'll listen to part of Deep Summer Music performed by the Colorado Symphony Orchestra with Marin Alsop conducting.
So Libby, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Oh, uh, um, several things actually. Uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, uh, writing um, quite a bit of art song, uh, you know, in these times of quarantine. You know, it, it, it's lovely to just sort of make little gems. Uh-huh. You know, uh, 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 for, uh, so I'm writing a lot of art song, particularly on the poetry of Lewis Jenkins, who, um, uh, who is also Minnesota is full of really great writers, you know, and wonderful poets. And Lewis Jenkins is one of them. He's just passed on, but makes little tiny poems, you know, like, and so I'm making little tiny songs. <laughs> uh, 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 as a number of us are, there's a collective group working on Lewis Jenkins right now, which okay. is fun. Then um, uh, I uh, have um, a couple chamber pieces I'm working on uh, for the 22-23 season. One is for uh, fabulous harpist, Bridget Kibbe, uh, uh, and um, it's for harp and violin. Uh, and then um, an, uh, another piece for um, Camerata Pacifica, which is a fabulous chamber uh, organization in Santa Barbara, writing a piece to commemorate uh, the life of, uh, uh, of, um, uh, uh, of a, a man uh, who was the undersecretary of agriculture in the 1960s. But um, this piece is commissioned by his, his wife, Joan Davidson. Uh, and the piece is a portrait of, um, a portrait of integrity which just sounds deadly, but <laughs> but uh, it's not. It uh, this is a piece for um, for horn and cello and piano, uh, and I'm I'm early on in it, so that I'm thinking about what is what does integrity have to do with lyricism, mm-hmm. uh, and I have no idea at the moment, but I know it's there, you know. <laughs> and so so I, I'm I'm working on that very abstract idea. I don't know about you, um, but for me, the pitches and the rhythms, and th- that's the last thing to come with a piece. For me, you know, uh, uh, if you know your instruments and you know what they're capable of, you don't have to actually go after pitch until you're actually ready to go after it, uh-huh. for me. Uh, so, so it's those. And then there's an orchestra piece that, uh, that I'm working on for everything's gotten postponed. So over the next right. five years, there's, you know, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And oh, small opera. I just finished a small opera for Baldwin Wallace College. And yeah, it's it's a uh, great. Well, if my listeners want to learn more about you, what is your website? Where can they find you? Ah, at www.libbylarson, that's S-E-N, larson.com. And are you out on social media as well? I, uh, my website, you can, you can get on your, on your cell phone, but I, no, I don't, no. Okay. <laughs> It's way too time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Well, Libby Larson, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you and talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Movable Dough. It's my pleasure. And thanks for doing this for composers in, in America. My guest today was composer Dr. Libby Larson. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Libby Larson, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. 
This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.